recitation may Allah bless him for that that you know it begins with that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says I have made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another right and so already from the beginning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is putting a challenge to us like do you actually know one another Right? Do you know each other's history? Do you know what the other has contributed to your life or contributed to your, your belief, your understanding, the way that you live your life on a regular basis? And then, subhanAllah, like not long after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't say that you have, do not say that you're believers, for, for Iman has yet to enter into your heart. Right? Like the fact that these two things, are close together in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is challenging us, right? And then it says, obey Allah and obey the messenger. Meaning that, subhanAllah, who was the first, if we were to, to look at, obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who created races and tribes and colors and nations and cultures, but in addition to that, subhanAllah, is, he's saying also, that, look at what the messenger of Allah did as it relates to these particular matters, right? And so, we, when we look at his example, even before the Prophet ﷺ was before revelation, right? He belonged to the society of Inhilf al-Fudur, which was the society that was known for already uplifting those who were oppressed, right? Who was those who were the those who were suffering in the Arabian society, like basically, <coughs> not only to get to know them, but to know their stories, to know their narratives, but then to make their narratives known into the public. And so, you know, when we look at why do we have, you know, why do we address anything inside the masjid with Black History Month, we might say, you know, because we, for, for many years, we said there is no race in Islam, right? For many years, we're like, there is no racism in Islam, there's no, and that might be true, but that doesn't mean that there's no racism amongst the Muslims, <laughs> right? From the perspective of Islam, 100%, may be mayor, there's no racism, but in order, it's kind of like Islam is a hospital and the Muslims are the patients, right? And, and the, you know, at least they're in the hospital, but they definitely need some treatment, right? <laughs> definitely need some treatment in order for us to address the issues that are inside of our heart. And when we look at the Prophet and what he did in terms of society, we first have the example of Subhan al-Qadiq, even like his, you know, Bilal ibn Rabah was actually one of the early companions of the Prophet even before the advent of, of revelation. Because the Prophet used to go to the cave regularly, on a regular basis. And because it was known that slave class, they would have to get up early in the morning in order to do certain things. And so Bilal would actually find him very often descending from the mountain. So in the night of revelation, Subhan al-Khaliq, it was actually him and Bilal, there's a, a, an entire narration that it, was, it wasn't long before Bilal began to approach him about these matters. But we won't go into that, we're not here for that. We're not on the Black Sahaba uh, series. That's a, that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic. Bi'idhnillah, that's something we should discuss. So, what happens though is that the Prophet ﷺ, so when he tells his best friend Abu Bakr to go free Bilal, this wasn't just a man he had just met. Because there were many slaves in Saudi Arabia at that particular time. This was something, this was somebody that he had a relationship with. So of course his level of pain 
you know, was even heightened in this particular case. And I always, you know, think about one of my teachers told us that, yes, this was someone who had the rock of oppression upon his chest, and, but he had the support of the Prophet ﷺ behind his back. Right? And that ultimately, of course, is what freed him. And in reality, this, he was suffering a physical, um, a physical incarceration or a physical bondage. But how many of us, as a result of what's happening in society and as a result of racism and things like that, we're inside of a mental bondage or a spiritual bondage? And so the part of the reason why we even want to address things like Islam and you know, Black History Month, what is the intersection between race and what is the intersection between Islam and race, Islam and blackness, Islam and anti-blackness, the Muslims and anti-blackness, where does that occur? We have to discuss these things in order for our own full spiritual um, evolution. Right? So in addressing these, I want, uh, there are a couple of things, uh, subhanAllah, I'm, I'm really excited. I want to thank you today actually for your patience as we work through our technical difficulties. So I want to actually talk, so my portion of today is to talk about the intersection between Islam, race, and revolution. And so for me, that's like super, super exciting. Um, and it's, it's partially because when we look at revolution, a lot of times we only think, we start kind of from the civil rights movement, and then we think, you know, especially um, as Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, Allah the anniversary of his passing was yesterday, we mostly, when we think about revolution, we think about that time, right? We don't think about what actually were the movements, the mindsets, the migration, the movements of the heart, the movements of the spirit that actually even led to not just him, but what would be considered the entirety of that movement. So in order to do that, we'd have to go back. You know, we'd have to definitely begin inside of West Africa. Because a lot of times when we think about slavery, we just talk about it as if people just say, hey, come get a boat. Right? We've got some great opportunity. Recently, they tried to rewrite history and say that um, people, this was a little funny to me, they called it uh, a migration. That it was, you know, they called it a migration. And so, you know, there was like, what? Oh, what? Oh, who? <laughs> like, this was not, a, you know, this was not an immigration of people. This is not people who just came like, hey, I was thinking, at that particular time, at that moment, However, if we were to look at six centuries before Columbus actually showed up, there is a migration, right? There is a willing migration. You can find this in the books of Ivan Ben Sertima, one of the, my one of my like one of my most favorite books, and called "They Came Before Columbus," right? And so that one is the one that just kind of gives a real detailed report of them coming before Columbus. So I want to point you. Um, if you turn your eyes for a moment, am I too far away? No. So this is uh, basically an, a particular painting that was done showing some of the, basically commemorating some of the relationships that West Africans had with what we would consider Amer uh, Amer Indians or those who were considered Native Americans or the people who are native of this particular land. Can you read those names on there? I can't see that far. Hash, Hash, Ibn Saeed, Ibn Aswad, mm -hmm. Ibn Aswad, who is also Bain. known as Ibn, and then also there's Ibn Farooq there. Ibn Farooq, uh, Gando, and King Wanaliba. Um, so what I want to mention about these particular names is that it's it's interesting is that as they're recorded inside of history, they're they're recorded as Spanish explorers, right? <laughs> I 
And so what happens when you say Spanish explorers, you immediately think of what? Like what continent do you think of? Europe. You think Europeans. Well, it turns out these were actually Moors, right? So people would say, what do you mean they were Moors? They were West Africans, <laughs> right, who had traveled and lived in sometimes only a very short period in Spain and then began to explore throughout not only um, the, um, North America, but what we would consider South America into the Caribbean. And this was actually wasn't, according to Ivan Mansurdama, this was not the beginning. Like this was just discovering the Moors doing it. They're actually artifacts that begin to place even not only what I would, not only um, West Africans inside of the Americas, but specifically West African Muslims. And where do we find the most prevalent of history is actually, can you push that for me again? The most prevalence of it begins right there. Yes. So how many of you have ever seen this picture? Never? You've never? Just maybe look to this side. Just this section. If you were to cut out just the right section of that. How many of you have ever seen that? Nobody has any idea who that is? Yes. Yeah, it's the picture of Mansa Musa, who technically is considered one of the, if not the wealthiest man to date. Um, you know, he is one of the top three wealthiest men, but I think it's known that he's known as the richest man to date. So Mansa Musa, we usually see, just if I could kind of crop out the right, you know, the right corner of that particular map, where you see Mansa Musa, he's sitting on his throne, and on one hand he has some gold, and you may, in certain cases, see his camel. It was known that he took over 60,000 people to Hajj, right? He took over 60,000 people to Hajj, and not only did he take them to Hajj, but it was known that he spread so much wealth on his journey toward Hajj that it began to change the currency, what we would consider eastward, right? When he arrived, there were a number of Saudi Arabian, there were a number of scholars from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia, even from Yemen, who were like, I've heard about your great university in Timbuktu. I want to come be a part of that. And so there's one particular scholar from Morocco who says, I arrived and I was so excited to actually you know, be a teacher in this university, in, Tim, in the, the University of Timbuktu, and it was called Senkor Institute or Senkor University. And he said, when I arrived, I realized not only was I not qualified to be a teacher, I was not qualified to be a student, right? So he said, I went back and studied for another 10 years. And then I applied and to become a student in that university. That was the height of Islamic knowledge that was prevalent inside of that time. Now, Mansa Musa is known as being the king of Mali. However, how did he become king? And that's why I was saying the significance of we usually just see that right particular aspect of the map. But very interestingly is that if you look to the left of the map, you see there is, can anybody see what's there all the way to the bottom left corner of that map? Past the camel. Past the tent. There's a ship. There's a ship there. Going where? Why is it on why is it on the west coast? East coast. West coast. I'm tripping. Right? Why is it on the west coast? Right? This particular ship 
is actually known for how Mansa Musa came. It's, it actually tells the story of how Mansa Musa came to power. Mansa Musa actually came to power because his brother, by the name of Mansa Abu Bakri, was known that he was not interested in being king at all, and he wanted to be an explorer. He had heard about those previous to him who had traveled to a land beyond the fog. And he said, I'm interested in following in those footsteps of those of those um, explorers before me, those Moorish men that we had talked about in the picture, he said, I'm interested in, in finding out what's over there. I've heard some wonderful things about it, and I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm interested in being an explorer. This king thing, that's going to hold me down. You, he told his brother, I, I, you know, I give up my throne and my power. You be king, I'm, I'm going to get a fleet of ships. He initially sent between 9 to 13 ships. Those one ship returned back to him. He initially sent them out. One ship came back to him and said there was a powerful storm that we begin to see the ships kind of fall into this, um, like fall into an abyss. And I was the only one who was able to back up and turn the ship around and return back home. And so most, most people would be like, whoa, that's a big loss. I've lost between somewhere between nine to uh, somewhere between the loss of nine to about 12 ships. And so most people would be like, that's it, I'm done. Let's just, you know, I guess I might as well just, I don't know, figure something else out. Well, what happens is, is that he decided this time we'll send 120. Right? So he sent 120. And when I read um, Leo Weiner's account at Harvard University that begins to detail the journey of Mansa Abu Bakri, it's actually, it, it wasn't until I started to read some of the details of it that I started to get chills because he describes people, their Native American accounts, describing people who are, they're walking along the coast and they're, they're talking to men and women on this particular, like on these, uh, that were actually on the ship. And so I was like, wait a minute. I imagine for, and I don't know about you, but for my mind that was like, I imagine men as exploring, but I didn't imagine families. Right? And so thinking about, wow, there were these very courageous, very brave West African explorers, adventurers, 120 ships of them, male, female, animals, um, you know, they brought food, and all of that thing came to America. So there are a couple of things that um, I just want to point out that became historical significance and pretty much evidence of their, of their arrival as well as their stay. We begin to find Sharia documents. We begin to find Islamic contracts of business, Islamic contracts of marriage. We begin to find land ownership um, documents between them and Native Americans. For a very long time, pretty much inside of caves, there were some caves in Arizona that had some writing on them as well as some cave paintings. Then for a number of years into the early 1900s, they pretty much were like, these are some Native American tribal you know, paintings, no big deal. And then what was recently discovered is that actually it's Mendinkin script. And so if you don't, if you're not familiar with Mendinkin script, Mendinka are people who live in the southern part of Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Mali. And so there's one particular hand painting that says the elephants are sick, right? Which is always like, I'm just like, they were elephants, sorry. Um, and so this whole thing about the elephants were sick, it's a, it seems such a small thing, but it's such a big clue. 
because elephants are not native to America. The closest, the closest ability in order to bring elephants to America, you had to have a very large vessel, right? And the closest ones to be able to do that are from the elephants of West Africa. So that begins to unlock a whole another level of journey. We begin to find coins, we begin to find gold. And then I want to, basically what we know is not only did they arrive, they settled, they expanded, they married, they owned land, they set up masajid, they, uh, they were living, praying fam Muslim families who, had, who were in this place, on this land, that we particularly call America today, uh, uh, more than six centuries before Columbus. So now when we get Columbus, what happens is Columbus is, um, he's, he doesn't come alone. I know he's always presented like, mashallah, is like this great genius. But what happens is, is there is we know that there was a group of Moors who were also on, the, on this boat with him, on the ship with him, who offered him the Piri's map. The Piri's map was actually discovered um, in Turkey. This gets even more exciting. The Piri's map was discovered in Turkey. And basically, it's a map of the entire interior of America, right? It goes up the Mississippi River. It shows, it like gives details of the Appalachian and the Blue Range. It gives details that had never been discovered before, especially particularly for this age map. Columbus, with his lack of confidence, in the black men who were with him, we'll call it that, <laughs> his lack of confidence, basically told them, this map, I'm not going with this map, I'm going with the Italian map. Which put him 25 degrees more and more and more off his mark. And so then he said, well, I was trying to go to India. Well, you were really, really, really far. Probably would have just been smarter if you had just told the truth, right, of, of what happened. So we know when he arrives, Particularly, he actually details in his, in, in his journal that um, he, he says to his son, who his son actually writes in detail, that not only did my father say that when he reached Cuba that he saw a mosque like the ones built, like the Moors built on, on mountains in Cuba, he said in addition to their dress, their colors, their jewelry, this was, this was definitely... Um, reminiscent of the West Africans that we had, um, that I have encountered inside of Spain. So even on his own account from his own diary, he admits there were people, not only there were people here, but he actually details um, their description in terms of their Islamic influence and particularly that mosques closed the whole night. I want to fast forward to what we would consider the second mass migration, <laughs> right? And that second mass migration of slavery. And that's a big fast forward because, again, we have that sixth century that we know of before Columbus. Ivan Van Sertema actually goes even further than that. He goes way back into BC with the Olmec heads. He, he goes, in terms of the West African presence inside of America, he goes pretty far. But when we get to, I mean, are you guys familiar with the Olmec heads? I just said that so freely, but I, was, I just realized. So the Olmec heads were basically statues of West African men that when they discovered their heads, they were more than, I think, eight feet tall and ex like basically extremely broad. And they basically discovered them kind of buried in Mexico. 
And so as they began to unearth them, they realized it wasn't just one, there were many of them. And so if you just look up old back heads, we're not here for that today. So, <laughs> so in that, um, Muhammad, we fast forward to slavery, where many times we kind of just think, we say slavery, the slave, you know, the, the mid-Atlantic slave trade, something very casually, as if there was just kind of this gathering of people, and they all got on a boat, and they just, you know, had, like, maybe there was one man with a gun, and then all of these people just kind of fell in line. I, there's a, there are a lot of missing pieces to that particular narrative, and that's, I think, what people don't know, is that not only were a multitude of them tricked, of course, there were uh, many of them, they were well-equipped in terms of weaponry, but in addition to that, there were a multitude of, there were a multitude of resistance. Right? So much to the point that one, um, one of our great scholars, the Sheikh Uthman Demfodio, who is, is, was actually closer to the coast of West Africa, began to move his kingdom more inward. Right? And so how do we know that as he begins to detail his story is because they were actually migrating away from the coast because of the constant um, because of the constant fights that they were experiencing with Europeans who were basically, you know, killing people, taking people into slavery. And so and so as a result of that, there were, you know, Sheikh Uthman Danfodio details this documents a number of these um, a number of these wars that were fought and and a lot of them having to do with basically that encroaching um, the encroaching slave catching that is beginning to happen and so that's why he begins to move forward now already from the beginning if you don't know who Sheikh Uthman Demfodio is in terms of our great Islamic history He's often recorded as like this warrior, and he's only recorded in a lot of, you know, what we would consider American or European documents as like this warrior, but this is one of the greatest shuyukh of our time, right? And he is the daughter, I mean, sorry, he is the father of, um, of his daughter is another great shaykha, uh, humanitarian, I mean, everything you can think of, who, whose name is Nana Asmo. And Nana Asmo started something called the Yantaru Project, and the Yantaru Project was literally that she went to over 800 West African villages where she would go into those villages, she would train them in aqidah, fiqh, and what we would call tasqiyah, spirituality, and then she would say, and now you need a school for academics, she would build clinics, and she, then she said, we need some kind of economic arm for this. And then she would train when she would have about 80 to 100 women that when they were well trained, she would give them this, um, basically like this hat that had a red scarf that um, went through the hat so they would know that the Yantaro are coming, <laughs> right? Like they are present. And when they were well established and on their own in terms of their, their father's eye knowledge, in terms of economic empowerment, um, in terms of their health care, and, and those women could basically hold their own in that community, then she would go on to another community. We actually see her effects, subhanAllah, even until today, um, of the, the Quran schools that were not only started but ran, and the amount of women, the, the female scholarship 
from Nigeria into Senegal, definitely into Mali, we see the presence of West African female scholarship extremely strong in West Africa because of Nana Asmu and that which she built. So now what's important about this is that when we think about this is also happening alongside slavery at the same time. And so when we talk about people being captured from, the, from West Africa and then brought to America, I want you to imagine those who are in the Quran schools, those who are learning their fifth, those who know the Aqidah, those who are studying Arabic at very high levels, many of them are, are kidnapped right, by force and sold into slavery. Right? And so, and I, I want us to understand that then this is how we get in Dr. Bilal Ware's book, Dr. Rudolph Ware's book, where he talks about the Quran in chains. And so the Quran in chains, because this was, long story short, as slavery is being talked about, uh, okay, so we passed Mansa Abu Bakri, those are his ships, those are some of the texts, we're going over expert, there we are, right here. Um, so as we, the reason why they were called the Quran in chains is because there was an understanding that if you memorize the Quran, they would call you a walking Quran. Right? And, they were, and, and the, they were very serious and dedicated right, to people making sure that they memorized the Qur'an. Because it was, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't take the pages of it lightly in the fact that very, having, having been well-versed in the hadith of Akhir al-Zaman, and being well-versed in the hadith that talk about the end of time and that there will come a day when basically there would be no more Qur'an in the pages. So they took it very seriously that I have to become the Qur'an, right? Recognizing that, that yes, the Qur'an has a written tradition, but also the Qur'an was a... Um, the, the Qur'an was also an oral tradition. And they, they, they looked at Qur'an as something that when you memorized it, it wasn't just for the sake that you would become a parakeet, it was for the sake that you would begin to embody those principles and that understanding. Right? And so I want us to have that as we, as we get is and understand that this kind of Islamic knowledge is being taught at the same time of the encroachment of slavery. And so the biggest thing that's being taught is that if you are walking Qur'an, you are free as a bird and no one has the right to own you. Okay? And so that from the beginning um, started, a, a, there's a deep sense of resistance to, there's a deep sense of, sense of resistance, of course, to being kidnapped. There's a deep sense of resistance also to what we consider colonialization. There's a deep sense of, resi um, of resistance, but specifically amongst the Muslims. Specifically amongst the Muslims. And so, as they, I want to fast forward again, um, for the sake of time, to and into the fight for freedom. So the first one is, is the Haitian Revolution. That first picture is the picture of uh, the Haitian Revolution. And I want to talk about an, a man by the name of Imam Mekandao. <laughs> so Imam Mekandao is, long story short, he is a Quran teacher in one of those schools in West Africa. He actually intentionally says, my students are coming up missing, and I need to find out where they're going. 
So he intentionally has himself sold into slavery on purpose and ends up in Haiti because he felt like that his responsibility as a Quran teacher and as a, not only of Quran but Quran, Arabi as well as Fifth and Aqidah that he felt so strongly about that that he was like, I am a teacher, these are my students. I have a responsibility over their safety. And so if I, gotta, I, gotta, I have to know where they are. Right? And so he had himself sold into slavery. I just want us, I just want us to think about that for a minute. Right? The, the horror that is being reported back, you see people missing and never return. You know, gunpowder is introduced. You're, there are bodies. There are, there, there are witnesses to the bodies that are being, um, of the bloodshed that is present as a result of this resistance to slavery and the resistance of European colonization. So he knows full, he has some knowledge, let's say, of the level of what he's, of what he's doing, right? So already this, this understanding of resistance and, and resilience inside the spirit is deep inside him. He has himself sold into slavery. He arrives in Haiti. And this is where the story, he, he arrives in Haiti somewhere around the mid-1700s. And so, actually, it's around 17, what we know is like he's somewhere about 1720, he arrives uh, in Haiti. And so, he, he gets some very interesting students. We'll just, and like I said, for the sake of time, he's actually known for, like, he's, he's known as a troublemaker, right? And it's somewhere around 1760 that they begin to issue, uh, they begin to issue a declaration, like, do not import any more Muslim slaves. Because they are known for being able to unify, because they have a common tongue. When we did so many things, right? When we did so many things, thinking that we would separate them by tribe, they could unite by Arabi. In addition to, they, they would come together, just that whole Salat thing, like we're standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, ankle to ankle, and they were known for fighting. They were known for, we're free people. You can't, you can't sell me as a commodity. This is, even to them, like, you know, is this indentured servitude? Is there some debt? How long is it going to be? Like, oh, this is for life? Like, you think that I, my entire being is a slave? And I want us to understand that because of the way that we address black history, we always address it from the position of slavery first, right? And that is a problem from the beginning because what we're saying is that black people are a footnote in the, in the, in the great European movement. Right? Or they are a footnote that this was a dark moment in the American history, as opposed to, no, they are the American history. And so, when, but when we only begin their story from that moment, not only are we without, especially without telling his resistance, without telling his resilience, without telling the fight, then what we're saying is like, you know, they were just like, they were, they were a few servants in the corner while we were building great things. Not like they were the people who actually built the White House. Not like that. <laughs> you know, but like there were a few, you know, there were a few people serving some food while we were having great plans for the, yeah. Um, so, okay, back to Imam Kandal. Sorry. So Imam Kandal is known from the moment he arrives. He's like, this man is a troublemaker. Right? And he is spreading, it's like he's spreading and this is what they understood is like they're, he's spreading his voodoo. He's speaking in tongue. <laughs> right? 
he's speaking in tongues, and he's, he's putting people under a trance, and they have some odd rituals, and they called him a voodoo man. But in reality, he was an imam, he was a great sheikh, he was a great teacher. And so he began to, um, he began to actually train them in multiple forms of resistance. And this is, uh, this is something I really want us to kind of begin to think about, is that in the multiple forms of resistance, part of it was, I'm just not going to work. I'm just not going to do it. And if you beat me, I will do it very slowly. Right? Why? Because I don't, I'm not owned by you. And this is important because this begins to spread a narrative that black men are lazy. Right? When part of it was about, I'm not your slave. That by itself, just, I'm not doing it. Another form of resistance what, that was definitely something that was pushed with Imam Makandal was he was teaching them Arabic. Right? So that they could begin to speak in a language that their, that we would just call their mm, colonizers did not understand. Right? So, and we know that what would happen in America, which was a little bit different because Haiti was colonized by the French, what happened in America is that when you, the, the British understanding of Christianity, the Puritan view was a lot more, I don't want to just say strict, but they pretty much looked at any other religion other than Christianity as hedonistic, and you could have your tongue removed for calling via that. You could, it was also documented that you could not only have your tongue removed for calling the event, you definitely could, you're, you might get, you would get whipped initially if you were caught reading, because that's going to make you something other than a slave, and actually there were many slave owners who actually did not know how to read themselves. So the fact that there were many, and Muslims were known for having known multiple languages, um, but so one of the first things is you might get whipped, and the most severe is you could have your eyes scorched out. They would take hot branded coals and uh, gouge your eyes out that if you were caught reading. So what Imam Makandal is doing and teaching them not only to speak Arabic but to read Arabic is, is a serious like education in this also is also a form of the resistance. But I'm not going to necessarily be educated according to the way that you want me to. I'm going to study and learn what I'm interested in. Right? Which then says they don't want to learn. They're stupid. And that began the narrative that would begin to be spread. Imam Mekandal has two great students, one by the name of Imam Bukman, and later on Imam Bukman becomes the teacher of a man by the name of Toussaint L'Overture, who I hope you know who Toussaint L'Overture is. <laughs> He is responsible for the Haitian Revolution. This happens in um, 1780. Yes, 1780. And this begins, subhanAllah, I want you to understand the network that, that slaves actually had because it's quite ingenious. That not only would they communicate 
in Arabic, they would also communicate in song and in rhythm. They would also communicate in, um, in quilts, communicate signs, communicate revolt, communicate escape in quilts. And they would actually pass them on to each other, even if they would say, oh, I'm just going to visit my sister on such and such plantation. She had a baby. I wanted to bring, I, you know, I, want, I sold a quilt for her baby. But inside the, the, the stitching and the embroidery would be indications for how we're going to escape, when we're going to escape, or even when we're going to revolt. And so from Haiti into some of the first to catch wind is Nat Turner from Toussaint L'Overture. You get Denmark Vesey. That begins to spread throughout the Caribbean. People start to hear about it. People start to hear. Then it goes from the Caribbean into the south. Now you got Nat Turner, like, basically people are like, you know what, turns out we don't have to take this. We could burn it down. It was, now Patrick Henry is known for saying liberty or what? Death. Liberty or death. And for him, he was a patriot. Right? Liberty or death. For him, he is a patriot. A black man says liberty or death, or a Muslim says liberty or death, you are a terrorist, <laughs> you, are, you are a murderer, you are a number of things. But pretty much their position was liberty or death for many of them. So this second one is um, the revolution that happened in Brazil. And the revolution that happened in uh, Brazil, basically, long story short, there was the Yoruba and the Hausa. Uh, nations were very common, the, those who were shipped in, inside of Brazil. And so the Muslims basically were kind of dominant. And they were known to actually be, they, you know, they're described as that they did not, um, they said that they, would, they were quick to take over any other slaves that, that lived near them. And so making that description that they were quick to take over any slaves that uh, lived near them, what that meant is that they were converting them to Islam. So that there was kind of this thought and or word that was being spread that they must be forcing them, right? They must be like bullying them into converting because the level of conversion that's happening, particularly in Brazil, long story short, um, they decide that they're going to, they're, they're done, right? We've had it, like this is 18, in 1858, 1838? 1835. 1835, yes. Yes. So 1835. Um, this is the beginning of what's called the Great Revolt. And long story short, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to let Brother Oluduma go ahead and, and start. And, but, you know, no, I just, because I, I want to, you know, I, I want to, for us to understand just a couple of points and then I'm going to let him go because. You know, we definitely want to benefit from him. In 1835, this, basically, this Muslim start this revolt. It starts a little early. They anticipate it um, by a woman by the name of Sabina. And Sabina basically has a fight with her husband, right? And he leaves, and she goes out looking for him. When she finds him, he is basically in this room with these other Muslim men, you know, going over the plot. And he's like, by the morning, we're going to be free. And she's like, oh, so you're not coming home with me? We're just talking about you're going to be free. And so she goes 
And she basically tells and says, and by the morning, you guys are going to be, you know, receiving the lash. You're going to receive the whiplash. And so she actually goes, they alert the authorities. And so this particular revolt, although it wasn't considered successful, like the Haitian Revolution, um, freedom or liberation wasn't necessarily declared for them, but they fought huge and hard and long. And when that began in Brazil, what happens? People were like, this revolution begins to spread. And, and part of what begins to inform, even um, as it, rele is it um, reaches Abraham Lincoln, part of this in information is like, slavery is becoming dangerous. Right? Especially as it, and I, I want us to understand this because the fight for freedom, when we look at the civil rights movement, you have to understand where that spirit of resistance begins. Right? And so, Fast forward into basically when they're deciding the American Constitution, and you know, basically there there's there's some language inside of it. Long story short, that pretty much just says, okay, if we're not able to keep our slaves forever, right, then we do, we are going to need some kind of system where we could basically even those who were free because they had increasing amounts of what they called free people of color, especially like in New Orleans, Louisiana, what they called jeunes du color, especially because the French had a different system. There were a number of black women who were actually running plantations and who were in control. And so there was a, and it's because the French were different than the British in terms of those who came from England. They mostly stayed as opposed to the French went back. So you had a very different dynamic um, culturally amongst these populations of people. And so I mentioned that because it was very much a sentiment like, these people who are free, you know, free people of color, many of them were becoming leaders in their towns, leaders in their, it was like, this is a problem, right? So we need to figure out how we can recapture them into slavery. Just let just want to, like, if I were to, like, <laughs> like that, it's history, that's mass incarceration, right? That plot was mass incarceration, right? Like, basically, small things. We could get you for, you know, whistling at a white woman. We could get you for, um, you know, you're, you're like Anton Sterling. You're standing outside, you know, uh, a store. You're selling CDs. That, you know, or you're like Eric Garner, you're selling cigarettes. Petty things. Any reason to bring you back under that system of control. And, I, and it's very important for us to recognize how that, when, when people, those, raise your hand if you saw when they see us. Y'all about to kill me in here. <laughs> right? If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. It's important. There's, especially num in number four, there's just a very important line when Ava DuVernay is interviewed. She makes a statement and, you know, about is the system broken? She says, no, the system is not broken. It's working exactly as it was designed. So from there, remember we talked about those who, who felt like, yeah, you can keep going, um, those who felt like um, one form of resistance, say there, yeah, that one form of resistance was about education according to the way that we understand it, according to the way that we believe, um, that there were different forms. And so you find that through some of those, those early narratives of Omar ibn Said, Ayub Suleiman, Ibrahim, so you find these um, consistent with that. Like part of that was, the, 
you know, when we look at those that we consider like some of the greatest Muslim slave, you know, narratives of today that we really kind of emphasize are mostly those narratives that are focused on education, right? Like they could, you know, um, they were translating scripts, right? Like Omar ibn Said, his, his, you know, owner asked him to write the Lord's Prayer in Arabic, and he wrote, "Ida jaa nasrullahi wal like you know, and he didn't, and he didn't know the better. He didn't know that until it was many years later, right? That he discovered that, which is subhanallah. So, a lot of times people think that there's a big gap between the Muslims of that era and then coming into the Muslims, what we consider our common era. And actually that gap, as we, be, as we study more and more, is getting smaller and smaller. We used to think it was like a few hundred years. Now we're just in about what I would call the span of about 60 to 40 years. I want to speak really quickly about a community by the name of Bin Ismail. The Bin Ishmael, or the Bin, they call it, it was Bin Ismail, but they call them the Bin Ishmael tribe. Ben Ishmael tribe were a group of people that were known in, you know, we first find them on the books because they said they are, they are a mutt people. They called them Melungeons, which they were a breed of Africans and native people who had been on, who had been basically on the shores of America and could trace their lineage like pretty much way before Columbus. But there was a very small group of them that were left and they actually were known for being a nomadic people. That we find them, we find small groups of them into New York, down into Pennsylvania, and then we find them present toward the end in Ohio. And it's in 1921 that the first eugenics law is passed. Basically for, the first eugenics law is for the mandatory sterilization of any Ben Ishmael woman who comes into the hospital to deliver a child. This becomes very important, that becomes a very important portion of understanding some of the narrative of Elijah Muhammad. Uh, for what was happening inside of, um, and we're not talking about true or untrue or aqidah, we're talking about that this, their story became well known, especially amongst Remember, we talked about those early populations of Africans and Native Americans who had been here and intermarried and had families and, and brought that 120, you know, fleets with them and, and remained in America. So it's kind of very similar to what Latin Americans say well, when someone asked them, when did you cross the border? And they're like, never, the border crossed us, right? Like they were living here, had families, had land, the whole thing, when the... Um, when we would say the Europeans arrived and when then also slavery arrived, as that landscape began to change, they began to go into hiding. But what's interesting enough is that a man um, by the name of Noble Drew Ali, not only he joins, uh, he joins basically the circus, and he meets a number of people from not only Ben Ishmael, but then he goes into different lands, and then he's like, you know, according to his documents, he's like, wait, I, when he arrived, he goes to Egypt, I think he even goes to Turkey, he's like, I know some people who look like you, I know some people who talk like you, I know some people who have some similarities to you, and so we begin to hear just a little bit about Ben Ishmael before it said that not only did they begin to, um, because of just 
the changing dynamic, the changing situation, um, they were, it either became they were kind of living like homesteaders, or when they did try to come into the system, then they would be deeply harmed. This also begins kind of this narrative that happens amongst African Americans about don't go to hospitals, right? This is like, we would, this is like known, like we don't go to hospital. You go to hospital something small, you might come out in a body bag, right? This was something especially um, that was known about women. Like, I don't, let's try to, you know, this also started a lot of women saying, no, let's just try to have our babies at home. Another part of the resistance in some of these early communities is you have mother, um, Clara Muhammad, who is the wife of Elijah Muhammad and the mother of Warf Dean. So Clara Muhammad is the first who basically begins to really say, I'm not going to allow, you know, as El-Hajj Malik Shabazz said, only a fool would allow his oppressor to, to educate his children. <laughs> and so what, they, what she was like, you know, I'm not sending, part of understanding resistance is, I'm not sending my children into public school. Because what happens, of course, in public school, they were being indoctrinated, they were, you know, there was a definite a miseducation going on, there was a, there's a colonization of the mind that was happening. And so, long story short, she started a movement, you know, where she's like, I'm not sending our children to school. And so the authorities arise, and she said, I will die dead as this doorknob before I let you educate my children. They took her to court for this, she actually won. And that began what we know today as the homeschool movement. Um, so in these early, so you see that community far to the right of this image. The woman you see in the middle is a woman by the name of Sayyidia Khadija. And Sayyidia Khadija is the, 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 the left I told you about was the, the community of noble Drew Ali, which is beginning in 1920. In the middle, Sayyidah Khadija is the wife of a man by Sheikh Ahmed uh, Daoud Ahmed Faisal. It's important for two reasons. That's him as an older man with who? With Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz. So, Sheikh Daoud Faisal is stationed in New York, in Harlem, where Malcolm's mosque was. And so, of course, there's another meeting of him when, he's, when they're but, both much younger men. And so what we do know is that Sheikh Dawood Faisal actually speaks to Malcolm and er, uh, a uh, young Malcolm very early and begins some of his transition um, into what we would call in Ahl Sunnah. And so not only does that happen so beautifully, but Sheikh Dawood Faisal and his wife are jazz musicians. Now some of you might think like, but what's important about what you have to understand about some of the history of jazz is not only some of the tones and some of the music. It was um, there's an there's been entire conferences about the the connection between its scales and its rhythms and its movement that's very much connected to Quranic recitation inside of West Africa as well as the Adhan. And so. This is, and, and, and what we know about jazz music is, is that it's uniquely American. It is a music that, it is a genre of music that is uniquely African-American that they brought to the world stage. Now you're like, jazz today, you're like, what? Yes, it's, it's a, and why is this important? You might say, well, why is that important? Is because it was initially a very kind of like a counterculture inside of Harlem be before it became like boom in Harlem. 
as jazz musicians began to increase, so does Islam amongst jazz musicians. America then says, this is a cultural greatness. We should spread this all over the world. We should send them all over the world as cultural ambassadors. Well, what do you think those men who literally, there was a mass conversion of musicians at that time as they're being sent all over the world, what do you think they're also spreading? Islam. And the understanding, particularly, of the black resistance understanding of Islam. They're telling people about their story. They're telling people about slavery. They're telling people about civil rights. When I was in Palestine, I met a, a, a Palestinian Black Panther. And I was like, I need you to explain that to me. <laughs> and when he began to explain it to me about how they were directly connected, I, it, when he detailed for me the time frame, the relationship that they had with even H. Rap Brown, with those who were part of the, the Black Panther movement, how they considered basically their fight for, for Palestinian rights very similar to the fight of what the African Americans were fighting in the civil rights movement. We didn't, we didn't just come up on this, uh, this, this Arab African, African American alliance today. Right. Even though we know that during the Ferguson riots, right, that it was actually there were Palestinian freedom fighters who actually were training them for how do you respond to the how do you respond to the tear gas? How are you going to respond to when they bring out the riot gear? They were actually training them. Some of those from the Black Lives Movement. This was not a new connection. This was not. So that, you know, in addition to El Haj Malik Shabazz, one of the reasons that he was a target for assassination was his influence, right? His influence around the world, especially that was um, in, in Libya, in Egypt, um, his influence, matter of fact, the French had pretty much like decided in terms of if you're going to bring America up on charges uh, for the charge of slavery, we will back you, we will support you. There are a multitude of, of understanding how resistance now were taking a multitude of fronts. There was education, right? That front, education even of your children, even how you educate yourself differently. There's also kind of a cultural um, resistance. There was cultural revolution, which led to, what do you think jazz, jazz led to a group called the Last Poets? The Last Poets are basically the original spoken word artists, right? And what evolved out of spoken word artists was hip hop. And the, if I, the relationship between Islam and hip hop are simultaneous, especially in the beginning. That hip hop was actually the counterculture that was about social consciousness, that was about resistance. And so in the beginning of hip hop, it's laced with Islam. Matter of, matter of fact, throughout the 90s, you could hear in Central Park, like brand Nubian, like Allahu Akbar, calling the, like it was cool to be Muslim. Right, like this was, that was a part of that underculture, like resistance movement and hip hop was considered like, you know, a very, um, like a, a kind of a revolutionary cultural stance, right? Then no, I'm not crooning for you. No, I'm not, you know, it was, and it was a, a, a very kind of alpha male in addition to, you know, kind of stance. If you look at early pictures of Queen Latifah, she's wearing hijab, even names like, for my name, for example, how I got the name Aisha, right? My parents weren't Muslim, but I was born with the name Aisha because Stevie Wonder had been influenced by Islam and he named his daughter Aisha and then wrote a song about her. 
And so when, I, my, when my mother had given birth and my father walked in singing that song, they were like, her name is Aisha, right? And that wasn't uncommon. Aisha, Kareem, Jamal, you know, this wasn't uncommon. All right, Sheikh Daoud Faisal, going back to him and this picture of Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, he then becomes responsible, just the last slide, he becomes responsible for three particular people, and I'm going to be quiet. He becomes responsible for a, a man by the name of Wali Akram. Wali Akram basically said, who are the underserved population of America? It's basically prisoners, especially those who are in prison for crimes they didn't commit or for petty crimes. And so he begins to go into prisons and say, Islam is your birthright. And he begins to spread Islam in the prison system. And this is how we begin this thing, like people, black men must have become Muslim out of prison, right? He does it from the East Coast to the West Coast. And at this point, I think it's over 40,000 people have attributed their Islam to, to, a name, to a man by the name of Wali Akram. He's also responsible, part of that movement, it was also responsible for some of the settling between Bloods and the Cribs, that's a whole other matter. Um, but I want you to understand, who are they serving? It's this undercoat, it's this undercurrent, right? The resistance, and even Islam becomes a part of the resistance to the culture. Um, and so, he's also responsible for the man by the name of H. Rat Brown. H. Rat Brown becomes Imam Jamil Al-Amin. Imam Jamil Al-Amin becomes one of the greatest Imams uh, out of Atlanta. And basically, what's Sheikh Daoud Faisal is considered basically the founder of the Dar es Salaam movement. So that's your Kareem Abdul Jabbar, which then began to affect Islam and sports and athletes becoming Muslim um, and his effect. Subhanakallahu alhamdulillah.